everyone, and welcome to the Southcliff Podcast. We're glad you've joined us. Now, here's Senior Pastor Dr. Carol Marr with this week's sermon. Well, it's a joy to be back with you. I was gone last week, and man, Dr. Higgins steps up, and often as I... Uh, have opportunity to see him just knocks it out of the park and shares with you truth that uh, is encouraging and challenging. And so I'm excited to be back with you today. We're going to continue our study in the book of Romans. So uh, we've been going through the book of Romans this year, just kind of verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we've made our way to chapter 12. And chapter 12 is actually a turning point in the book of Romans. First 11 chapters in the book of Romans Paul gives us some real basic doctrinal truth. Um, it's kind of a pattern with Paul. If you read the book of Ephesians, first four chapters or, or first three chapters are about doctrine, the last three are about practical application. And what Paul does in the first 11 chapters of Romans is he gives us some deep theology. He gives us some 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 basic truth that we need to understand and build our lives on. And then in the latter part of the book, he applies that. And he says, based on what you've discovered, based on what we know, how do we put that into practice in our life? So the, the, the last part of the book of Romans gets kind of fun because it really helps us understand how to apply some of the truths that we discovered in the first part. And in chapter 12, the first two verses, as he introduces this application part of the letter that he writes to the church at Rome, he offers for us a call to commitment. And he basically says, based on everything we've discovered, what is the response that we should have to that? And from that, he says, that response is a call to commitment. Now, it's fun when you're reading through and preaching through a book. You don't plan around Father's Day or Mother's Day or those things. But it's always amazing to me how that in, in God's calendar, these messages just seem to fit. And this one just seems to fit Father's Day because dads... If you think about it, dads have a way of just kind of cutting to the chase. You know what I'm talking about? Just giving the bottom line. Uh, There's not a lot of fluff. They just kind of tell you the way things are. It was certainly that way in my life. And, and, uh, and I'm reminded of my father who had a way of kind of giving solid, no-nonsense advice. Um, and in fun ways when I was growing up. My dad was just full of all these little quips and sayings that he would offer and, and uh, like this. I remember him saying to me, son, you never start out at the top unless you're digging a well. That's the only place in life where you start out at the top is when you dig a well. Everywhere else in life, you got to start at the bottom and work your way up. Or I remember him saying this to me on occasion. There would be a challenge that I would face and he would say, son, a dog can whip a skunk every time. But is it worth it? <laughs> and you have to think about that for a minute. Boy, there's wisdom there. You may win this fight every time, but is it worth it? Boy, I, I can't tell you how many times those words have rung 
true to me in, in life. And, and then probably the one I heard him say more than any other in my life growing up, because we would get hurt and come running to mom, and mom would, oh, mom would love on us, and, and I mean, a little bitty cut's a big deal, you know, with mom. I'd come to dad with a cut, and he'd say, son, I've had worse than that on my lip, and never quit whistling. Dads just have a way of getting to the bottom line. And in the text before us, Paul speaks to us like a father. He speaks in simple terms and he tells us what it means to be committed to Christ. He calls us to a new level of commitment. Now, there's a story that I've heard for many, many years growing up when it, when it comes to commitment that kind of puts it in perspective for us. So I'm going to tell you this and, and, uh, and ask you a question, and we're going to kind of entertain this question throughout this text this morning. It's a story of a pig and a chicken. And this particular chicken and pig grew up in a, a wonderful farm. The farmer was so good to them. I mean, he built this strong coop for the chickens and took care of them and fed them. And, and he made sure that his pigs were taken care of. And, and, and one day, a chicken was walking by uh, the, 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 the pen where the pig was. And, and she said, you know, we're so blessed to have such a loving farmer that takes care of us. I think we ought to do something nice for him. And the pig says, you know what? I think we should too. She said, well, I've been thinking about this. I think we ought to prepare him a big, good, healthy breakfast of eggs and ham and bacon. And the pig thought about it for a minute. And he said, well, that's a contribution for you, but it's a commitment for me. So here's my question for you. With regard to your commitment to Christ, are you a chicken or are you a pig? Is your commitment to Christ basically just the contribution, a part of your life that you give to him or are you all in? And that's what Paul calls us to in the text. Look, if you will, at this familiar passage, two verses in our time together today in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Paul begins with the word therefore. Do you remember what I've told you about the word therefore? Anytime you find the word therefore in the Bible, you always ask yourself the question, what is it? Therefore, it always connects us to something that has been said. And he is connecting us to what he has said in chapter 11. But I actually think beyond that, Paul is actually connecting what he is saying in the first verse to what he has said throughout the entire 11 chapters of this letter. And he begins by saying, therefore... The mercies of God, he introduces and talks to us about it in, in, in chapter 11. He's referring back to that, but he says, therefore, I urge you, I entreat you, I exhort you, I appeal to you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God which is your spiritual service of worship. 
And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, in just those two verses, Paul kind of introduces us to the, to the concept of this call to commitment. In the text before us, he, he, he builds a case. He, he first of all says, now, I, I believe that, that, that God is calling us to commitment, but let me tell you why you need to be committed to Christ, because we want to know the bottom line. Why do I need to be committed to the cross of Christ? Paul said, therefore, you need, I urge you, I encourage you, I appeal to you, join me, come alongside me, brethren, because of the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. He said, this is the reason. It's because of the mercies of God. When you stop and think about the mercy of God, when you realize that you are the recipient of the mercy of God, when you understand that God has given to us, and what is mercy? Mercy is, is God withholding what we deserve. God not giving to us what we deserve. Grace, Paul has talked about throughout this entire letter, grace is God giving to us what we do not deserve. Mercy is God withholding what we deserve. And Paul said, look, based on the grace that we have received from God, that God loves us and, and, and pours out his grace on us, and he is merciful and withholds what we deserve based on the very mercy of God, if nothing else that alone is the reason that we should commit our life to him. He said it is the mercies of God. You and I are the recipients of that mercy. In the first 11 chapters, he talks about the fact that, that, that we are the recipients of God's grace and mercy. Do you remember first four chapters of the book of, uh, of Romans? Paul talks about the fact that we are sinners separated from God. That every person is born into this world a sinner. And it doesn't make any difference if you're in church or you're outside the church. If you, if you believe in God or don't believe in God, Paul says we're all in the same boat. We are sinners separated from God. We were born into a sinful world. We inherited a sin nature from our parents. And, and God being a holy, righteous God cannot allow sin into his presence. So you and I have a problem. Every person in the world has a problem. We are sinners separated from God. And then the rest of those chapters leading up to this chapter, Paul says, but God loved us. And he made a way where there was no way. He allowed us to experience his grace. He gave us forgiveness and new life. And we can know him personally, not by going to church, not by being baptized, not by being Baptist or Catholic or Methodist, but God came in the person of Jesus, lived a sinless life, died to pay the penalty for your sin. You are a sinner and the wages of sin is death. That penalty had to be paid. And Jesus comes and pays that penalty so that you can be free. And he said, he has given you grace and mercy. And when you confront the mercy of God and the grace of God that has been so lavished upon you, it demands a response. 
This kind of mercy demands a response. That kind of love demands a response. There was a great hymn writer written many of the hymns in our, in our book, Isaac Watts, that, that wrote on this in a song called When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And the last verse of that song, he simply says this, were the whole realm of nature mine, if everything in the world was mine, that were a present far too small. If everything in the world was mine, that is a present far too small to offer to the one. And then he says this, because love so amazing and so divine demands my soul, my life, my all. There's nothing that I can give to God to express gratitude for what he has done for me. It is worthy of a gift of my life. And Paul said, for this reason, for the reason of the mercy that you have received, all of us, for the reason of the grace that God has bestowed upon us and made available to us, that alone requires of us action. And the only right action is that we say, God, I give you the only thing I have. That's me. I, you know, nothing else I own I can give to God because everything I own, he gave me. The only thing I can give him is me. And Paul said, because of his mercy, and he's going to build on that even later in the next verse as well. But he tells us that the, the why is the mercies of God. But then secondly, he answers the question, what? If mercy demands a response, what is the response it demands? And, and we can call that the, the character of commitment. The response to the mercy and to the grace that Paul has shown us in the first 11 chapters is that we present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Now, the sacrifice that Paul talks about is, is to be a total sacrifice, and it is a reasonable sacrifice. That's what he says. Now, we know it's to be a total sacrifice because the word sacrifice itself carries with it the idea of total, right? I mean, when Paul writes this letter, and he says to present yourself to God as a living sacrifice. You were, use the word sacrifice. Everybody in, in Paul's day would have immediately gone to the Old Testament system of the sacrificial system where an animal is killed. That's total sacrifice. The animal doesn't live. It is killed. It is brought to the altar, laid on the altar, and gives its life. And so when Paul says that I'm asking you to give your life as a living sacrifice, it is a total commitment of our life to him. And it's interesting, he says, you are to present. He, he, he doesn't say, the word present carries with it the idea of willfully giving my life. I'm not forced to, I'm not compelled to. But based on what God's done for me, when I confront the reality of his grace, when I confront the reality of his mercy, when I confront the reality of his love, when I know that God doesn't give me what I deserve, which is separation from him eternally in hell because I'm a sinner, and chooses instead to give me eternal life through grace, forgiveness of my sin, and heaven. 
when I realize what he has done for me, it demands from me a response. And the response is that I give him myself. I present my body willingly. It, it carries the idea of crawling up on top of that altar and presenting myself to God to say, here I am. Lord, I give myself to you. Now, when Paul says that we are to present our bodies, he's not talking about the physical body. He's talking literally about every part of our life, that we are to give God our life, our hope, our dreams, our plans, our aspirations. Everything about my life becomes his as a result of what he's done for me. Now, I want to tell you something. I've discovered that's hard to do, right? It's hard to give God my life, my dreams, my aspirations. It's kind of scary if I give him my dreams. What if he asks me to do something I don't want to do? What if he leads me in a direction that I don't want to go? It, it, it requires that I give up something, but yes, it does. And, and the sacrifice literally means that I die to self. I've discovered this. It is easier for me to say no to you than it is for me to say no to me. I have a harder time saying no to me than I have saying no to you. Dying to self is a hard thing, isn't it? I, I heard about a guy one time that, that wanted to commit suicide and he couldn't figure out a way to do it. There's so many different ways. You can shoot yourself, hang yourself, you can drink poison, you can set yourself on fire, you can drown. He couldn't figure out what to do, so he decided you'd do all of them. So he got a boat and rope and some gasoline and some poison and, and, and a match and a gun and he launched out into a little stream and, 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 he, and he threw the rope over a branch and, 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 he, and he put the noose around his neck and, and he cocked the pistol and doused himself with gasoline and he struck the match and he kicked the boat out from under him and he pulled the trigger and, and, and the boat movement caused him to miss and he shot the he, he shot the rope into him and he fell into the water and it put the fire out and he drank some of the water and he threw up the poison and later on he says and if I had known how to swim I'd have drowned I want to tell you something dying to self is not an easy thing to do but Paul says in light of what God's done for you it's the only thing to do Crawl up on the altar and say, God, I give you my life. I give you myself. It's a living sacrifice. There's an oxymoron there, right? Living sacrifice. Sacrifice literally means death. What Paul is saying is that you got to die to live. You got to die to self in order to live to God and experience the grace of, uh, of his goodness. Remember the words of Jesus, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. What was Jesus talking about? We think sometimes, well, this is the cross I have to bear. I want to tell you something. He wasn't talking about trouble. He wasn't talking about challenges. He wasn't talking about the difficulty you have in life. When Jesus uses the word cross, there was only one thing that came to the mind of his disciples. That's death. They knew what the cross was. That's capital punishment. That's death. Jesus was saying, if you're going to be my disciple, you've got to die to self daily. 
This is a daily process of crawling up on an altar and saying, God, because of your goodness and the richness of your mercy and your grace, I give you my life. And then he says this, not only is it a total commitment, it's reasonable. When he says acceptable to God, the word acceptable there can also be translated, um, or he says it's acceptable to God, which, uh, which is your spiritual service of worship. That spiritual service of worship can also be translated this way, the reasonable act of worship. Paul says it just, it's the reasonable thing to do. If, 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 if I weigh all that God's done for me in pouring out his mercy on my life, the only reasonable response is that I lay my life on the altar and I offer every part of it to him. It is the reasonable act of worship. In fact, let me just say this for a moment. From the text, he tells us what worship is. Worship is not about you. It's about him. Worship's not about receiving. It's about giving. And when we come in, we have a tendency to refer to parts of our service. Well, the singing part, that's the worship part. And then this is the teaching part of our service. But worship happens when I come and I give to The singing part is worship if you're giving that song to him. If you're not giving the song to him, you're just singing. But if the song can become an offering that you give, this, this expresses the, the gratitude of my heart. This expresses the, the, the praise that you deserve. This expresses to you. So, so all of a sudden, it's not about whether you like the song or not. It's, it, it is to offer a, as a gift to him. And, and Paul says, this is the reasonable act of your worship is that we give. That's what worship is. We give and Ultimately, we give ourselves. And that can't happen apart from this commitment. Now, the third thing that Paul does in the text below us, before us, is, is that he, he now talks about the demands of that commitment. What does that commitment look like? If this is what we are to do, and it's reasonable that we do this, that's the only reasonable response, then then how do I do that? Well, the demands of commitment are are captured in two commands that he gives. The first one is negative and the second one is positive. The first command that he gives is do not be conformed to this world. You know, if, if you really look at the tense of the text, you could translate it this way. Do not be conformed any longer to this world. Paul is, is, is insinuating that the people in Rome were conformed to the world. And he was saying, stop it. Don't be conformed to the world anymore. Don't, don't let the world be an expression of the pattern of your life. And when he talks about the world, he's talking about a pattern. He's talking about the scheme. The, the world could also be translated age. Stop conforming literally implies that the people in Rome were doing that and, and, and they need to quit. 
Don't be like a chameleon that takes on the colors of your surrounding. As a disciple, we should look different from the rest of the world. That's what he says. And this age, this world, is a reference to this sinful age, which is characterized today, if you look at it, I I think the way we can characterize the world is the world is literally selfish, self-centered, all about self-gratification, indifferent to the needs of other people because it's all about me. And Paul said, "You're, you're not like that. You don't live in the world to be all about you. You're to look like Jesus. And Jesus said, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and I came to give my life a ransom for many. Selfless makes us different than the world rather than selfish. Everything in the world teaches us that You know what? You deserve this. It's all about you. It needs to be you need you, you, you. And 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 Paul said, No, no, no. You you die. Because it's not about you anymore. It's about him. And that makes us different than the rest of the world. And you know what? I really think if the church embraces that kind of commitment, that's That's the thing that will draw the world to us. It's not a difference that repels the world. It's a difference that makes them scratch their head and say, wait a minute, this is not like I'm used to. What makes you that way? What gives you that joy? What gives you that peace? What, what give, because when I'm selfish, I'm never satisfied. If it's about self-gratification, do you realize that you never are gratified? Enough is never enough. I'm always seeking more. I'm always wanting more because nothing satisfies. But all of a sudden, if I'm living as God has called me to, I put myself on on, on the altar and I die to self and it's about him and I'm no longer selfish. I'm selfless. I'm no longer about my self-gratification. I'm about looking at people beyond me. I'm no longer indifferent about those that are around me. The world looks at me and says, how is it that you have found a peace that I can't find? It's that difference that he is calling us to. It's not to be so quirky different that, that everybody, it, it's, it's a difference on the inside. And, and then he develops that further when he says that the, the first commands don't be like the world. And the second command develops that further because it becomes positive. He said, instead, be transformed. The word transformed is the word from which we, the Greek word from which we get the English word metamorphosis. And the one thing that always seems to come to your mind with regard to that from the science lessons that we've learned as children growing up is what happens when a caterpillar turns into a butterfly, right? That's a metamorphosis. It's a change. What Paul is saying is this. We need to be transformed so that the outside becomes a reflection of what's on the inside. Did you know that the word uh, transforms also the word 
that is used to describe that that moment when Jesus was with his disciples and he went up on the mountain that's called transfiguration and he was transfigured before them same Greek word used transfigured what happened to Jesus he began to shine on the outside all that happened on the Mount of Transfiguration was he was on the outside suddenly what he was on the inside he's God on the inside always was in a human body but on the mount of transfiguration what happened the disciples got a glimpse from the outside of what was on the inside and so what he is calling us to do is is to live our life in such a way that we are transformed on the inside and that transformation is reflected on the outside So we become on the outside in behavior and in attitude and in action what we are on the inside. It's it's renewal. the, The word really carries with it a quantitative change. It's kind of like remodeling your kitchen. If you remodel your kitchen, you can change the cabinets, you can change the countertops, you can change the floors, you can add new appliances, but it's still the same kitchen, right? Doesn't look like it. But it's the same kitchen. And that's what he is saying. It's the same person, but we don't, we don't look like the same person because we've been changed. And even when he says that we are to be transformed, the very wording of being transformed means it's not something you do. It's something that's done to you. It's done from the outside that you are to be transformed. How? As I crawl up on the altar and lay my life down to say, God, I give myself to you. The Holy Spirit says, well, thank you. Now that you have given yourself to me, I'm going to make you on the outside what you are on the inside. Because Paul says, when we accept Jesus as our savior, we are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. God changes us on the inside when we accept him as our Savior. And the Holy Spirit says, now what I want to do is take that change that God has brought about on the inside, and I want to bring it to the outside. His part is to transform us. Our part is to commit and give ourselves a living sacrifice to him. And then he goes one step further and says, so the Holy Spirit does that. How does he do that? By transforming us by the renewing of our mind. Our brain is fallen. Our our brain's default setting is a mindset that is hostile toward God. And the Holy Spirit changes our thinking and our thought processes. When I become selfless rather than selfish, there's a change of attitude that happens in my mind. All of a sudden, I don't think about me anymore. I think about other things. There is this transformation that occurs in our mind. We submit, we present ourselves, and I believe this is a daily process that every day we get up and we say, God, today I choose to get on the altar and present myself to you a living sacrifice this is my reasonable worship so Holy Spirit do your thing bring a change on the outside that reflects the change on the inside do a work in my mind 
so that I have thoughts that are consistent with the thoughts of God and my behavior follows suit. Well, the final thing that he does in the text before us is is he gives us the effect, the so what of it, if you will. In that final phrase, he says, we are to be not conformed to the world, transformed by the renewing of our minds so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. He's saying this, then if you do this, then you'll be able to test, then you'll be able to see, then you'll be able to understand what the will of God is, that it's good and it's pleasing and it's perfect. I think what Paul is saying is this, you're never really going to know the will of God until you commit to him first. You see, a lot of us want to know God's will for our life so that we can decide whether or not we're going to say yes. I want to know God's will for my life. Oh, God, what do you want me to do? And the real reason I want to know that is because I, I, I want to veto if I can. And you know what Paul says? No. If you commit yourself to Christ, then God's going to fill out the other part. And it's going to be good. I've just thought of, of an example of that, and it's not a real good one, but, but maybe it, it illustrates it well. Years ago, we were walking through a transformational time in our church. We were praying, seeking God, deciding what is it that you have called us to do. That's where we really came face-to-face with a reality that God has placed us here at 4100 South West Loop 820 in Fort Worth, Texas to guide people of all generations into a thriving relationship with Christ. And, and we begin to ask the question, how can we do that? And, and we felt God leading us to say there are four things that you need to be doing if you're going to thrive. You, you need to be worshiping. You need to be sharing your faith. You need to be growing in a, in a small group and studying the word of God and and, uh, and you need to be serving because he's called you to serve within the body of Christ, giving you a spiritual gift. And so as we begin to flesh that out, I, I began to pray and I sensed God leading to say this, what would it look like if we staffed around those four things? That way, every time we had a staff meeting, serve, grow, share, worship was always at the table. So we don't leave anything out. We always have those And so I came to our staff and I said this. I said, guys, your job here at Southcliff is safe, but your position is not. We're going to change things. And we're going to staff around these four things. And we began to pray about how we would do that. And and, uh, you'll remember at the time, Spencer Plumley was was our college pastor and, and uh, young adults pastor. But boy, he had a heart for discipleship. And I just felt like, you know what? Spencer's the right guy for grow. Now, I had another guy that was an education pastor, been a minister of education for many years. But Randy had such a heart for seeing people um, plug in to ministry and, and get involved and find their spiritual gift in serving 
And, and so I, I, I began to approach them and says, you know what, Spencer, I want to move you into that grow position. And, and Randy, I want you to move into the serve position. And, and uh, Warren does such an amazing job in worship. We're going to leave you there to, to do what God's gifted you to do. And then there was that final position of serve, which is everything we do outside the walls of the church. And, um, and, and it's appropriate that Stu walks in the door right now when I'm talking about him. Yeah. Stu was our minister of youth and he was great at it, had a heart for it, had done it for years, passionate about it. But he was also the only guy we had on staff that could pass a geography test. He knew where countries were. He, he had a heart and a passion for missions that kind of flowed through in his youth ministry. And I just really felt like God was saying, he's the guy to be your share pastor to lead. Man, I prayed about that. I remember the night before I was going to talk to him on a Monday morning. This was my fear. I'm going to walk in and tell Stu, I'm going to move you out of youth ministry. I'm going to move you into the share position. And he's going to resign because his heart is youth. And he wants to be a youth pastor. And I get it. And that was my fear. And I prayed about it and prayed about it. I walked into my office on that Monday morning. And there was a letter on my desk in an envelope. And I opened it up. And it was from Stu. And when I saw that it was from him, I was worried. I'm like, okay, he, he knows and he's going to resign. But it wasn't. This is what it was. I opened it up. And it was a blank sheet of paper. With his signature at the bottom. And attached to it was a note that I still have. And it says this, whatever you write on this paper, I'm all in. That's what Paul is saying. Now, now what happened? He became our share pastor. And any of you that have been here very long know, my God goodness, does that not fit every gift he has in his ability? Has he not led us in, in phenomenal ways in the share ministry? But I want to tell you something. You'll never know God's purpose and plan for your life until first you commit. You don't get to veto it. And so Paul says, we commit and then we know the plan and purpose and it starts there. Well, I'm going to end the way I started by asking you a question. In your walk with Christ, are you a chicken <laughs> or a pig? Are you just making a little contribution to get along or are you all in? We're going to give you an opportunity to respond. And in fact, we're going to listen to a song played that was written by a fellow by the name of Judson Van Deventer in the 1800s. He, like you, struggled from time to time to know God's purpose and plan and to say yes to God's purpose and plan. He wrestled with 
his will versus God's will. And the battle inside raged until finally there was this pivotal hour when he said, I yielded. I finally surrendered to God and to his will. And he wrote a song. All to Jesus, I surrender. All to him, I freely give. I will ever love and trust him. In his presence, daily live. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. And God is calling you today to do the same. Will you? Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you move among us and that we hear clearly the call to commit totally to you. And I pray that today would be the day that we do. That all over this room we would say, God, I choose to crawl up on the altar and I willingly lay down my life and I say, God, I sacrifice my life for you. Take it, use it, whatever you want to do in me, through me, with me. I say yes. we thank you in Jesus name amen as this song plays I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond and maybe that you want somebody to pray with you maybe have a question about what it means to be a child of God or follower and I'm going to stand here just for a moment giving you that opportunity to respond but if you need someone to pray with you if you want to process what we've talked about you come as God leads